Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Product Coalition European Tour podcast. I'm in the bonus tour city of Cardiff today where I'm very excited to be joined by Peter Swereff. Peter, welcome. Hello, thank you. Looking forward to chatting through today's topic which is building data products inside a large corporate machine like Centrica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Centrica, a, a very big company, 30,000 employees and somehow I still managed to just about get data products out now and again. Good, good. I'm sure there's plenty of learnings we could all learn from uh, from from that. I'm looking forward to going through that. But first, I need to give, give firstly give some thank yous. Um, first up, a big thank you to Dupol.co for the introductions to all the guests here in Cardiff. Dupol is a global online survey provider that has recently switched to a pay-for-value model, meaning you can get started with their real-time multilingual app and embeddable surveys for free today. Just go to Dupol.co. That's D-O-O-P-O-L-L.co. Now, this tour and every single podcast episode is dedicated to raising awareness and support for the bushfire-affected communities and wildlife in Australia. If you do enjoy this episode or any of the episodes on the Product Coalition European Tour, consider showing your support at bushfire.productcoalition.com to support either the volunteer firefighters, the wildlife or the communities of Australia. As I say, I'm interviewing 50 product leaders across five European cities, and I'm going to gain insights, knowledge, and experience to share with you, the Product Coalition global community. If you've just joined us, welcome. We're a community of over half a million readers, 6,000 Slack members, and thousands of podcast listeners. Now, before we get stuck into the episode, I also need to give a thanks to some brands and individuals that have made significant contributions to the tour fundraiser for those Australian communities, wildlife, and volunteer firefighters. First up is UserPilot, which is a code-free user onboarding and adoption tool designed especially for product management teams. UserPilot helps to increase conversion, user retention rates and reduce churn by guiding new users to their first aha moment with interactive walkthroughs, contextual product tours and onboarding checklists. It allows product managers to build fully customizable, behavior-triggered in-app experiences with a simple visual editor. Go to userpilot.com to book your demo and get a free trial. Shobit Chug is an intentional product manager. Shobit is a Google product manager and he helps product managers become product leaders and have careers they can be proud of. Go to www.intentionalproductmanager.com to sign up for Shobit's free class on the habits that turns product managers into exceptional product leaders and help them move through their careers fast. Product-led teams like Mixpanel and Flexport know that the best time to capture engagement is when a user is already inside the product. That's why they use Chameleon to drive feature adoption, build onboarding flows and gather user feedback. You can give it a go at trychameleon.com forward slash success. I'd also like to thank Rich Miranoff and Chris Miles as individual donors to the fundraiser as well. Right, Peter, let's get going. Let's do it. Before we get into the world of building data products inside corporate machines, <laughs> specifically large corporate machines, um, we've got the icebreaker. So in the Melbourne series, it was a bit of a local's guide to Melbourne with the guests. In Sydney, it was a pub quiz. So for uh, Cardiff and, and all the different cities that I'm visiting, I've gone a bit more local. So the icebreaker game today is, is it Welsh or not? Oh God! Okay, let's do it. Let's do let's it. Do it. <laughs> now, so are you Welsh born and bred? I'm well. I'm born in Wales. Right. I've got Greek parentage and right. uh, Greek history. So my my children speak Welsh. Wow. I right. Don't okay. Speak Welsh. So this could be interesting. Right. Okay. Um, I don't expect to do very well. All right. Okay. Well, first first up, we've got a couple of products. So the first product, th- this could be controversial. Could create quite a bit of a storm on social media. Okay. Guinness. Welsh or not? So there's something in my in my brain which says actually the guy that 
maybe came up with Guinness originally was a Welshman. I've kind of got this bit of latent yeah. knowledge, I think. So I'm going to go, actually, yeah, there's some Welsh history there with Guinness. That must have stemmed from like some Welsh folklore or something <laughs> so, so <laughs> <laughs> been trending from pub to pub across, yeah, across yeah. the valley. Yeah, my misery. <laughs> is it, is it? So uh, my friend, the internet, um, says that you may think it's an Irish institution, but legend has it that the recipe was allegedly bought by Mr. Arthur Guinness from a tavern keeper in Holyhead, North Wales, whilst he was waiting for a ferry and taken over the sea to Ireland, where it became this iconic symbol it is today. Well, there we go. That's amazing. And the um, re- the related link to data science, which I'll talk about, yeah. is the guy that invented the T-test, this famous statistical test, worked for Guinness. And he was the kind of in-house statistician that used to figure out whether Guinness met its quality control or not. So if you go right, to the Guinness okay. factory in Dublin, there's a little yeah. plaque on the wall that everybody ignores, and it says, students' tea test was created here. So it's a little bit of a, a bit of stats folklore for you as well, related <laughs> to Guinness. Right. I'll tell you what, when, when I do a, a, a Dublin tour... Get on it. I'm going to get to that plaque and yeah, take yeah, you yeah. on LinkedIn. I'm going to take Definitely a picture of me it, on that plaque <laughs> <laughs> and find it. Um, brilliant. See, look, how much value have we already created exactly, in this episode? Exactly. This is brilliant. All right, then the next one, next product. And I'll tell you what, it could be controversial as well, but I'll, I'll get going with it. The refrigerator. The refrigerator? No, I've not, I've not heard anything related to Wales there. So, no, n- no that's, that's a complete mystery to me. I'd be really interested to hear that. Where do you think it's from? Uh, I mean, I was going to say Scotland because they invent lots of things, but it's already really cold there, so they probably didn't have much need for it. Maybe a southern country. Right. Yeah, maybe su- somewhere southern Europe-ish. Right. You'd be right with Scotland. I was, okay, well, yeah, they invented a lot of stuff. S- Scotsman William Cullen is the man we have to thank for the invention of the refrigerator. Cullen demonstrated his discovery at Glasgow University in 1748, though at the time no effort was made to commercialise the invention. Now, the reason I say it's controversial is, from my memory, I'm sure we had the refrigerator in the London podcast series. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> I just can't remember if it was attributed, maybe it was like attributed to a British invention. Yeah, yeah, that um, tends to happen if you're in Wales yeah. or Scotland. Yeah. If, you, if you do, if they do well, then it's they British. are British, but if they do poorly, then it's Andy Murray Scotsman yeah. or Gareth Bale Welshman <laughs> or something, so yeah. Very <laughs> true, very true. All right, next up, um, so... Yeah, yeah, your kids are going to love love this one. We've got some uh, a bit of a Welsh linguistic quiz okay. going on for you. Okay. All right. So the the quiz is you got to decide whether the w- the word that I'm saying whether it's Welsh or whether I just made it up this morning. Uh, I'm going to get thrown out of Wales <laughs> after the end of this. Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, first one is man a man a monkey. I don't, know why, I don't know why I did it in a Geordie accent. <laughs> man, a man, a monkey. I, that can't be a real word. No, I'm going to go with you made that up. You made that up. Man, a man, a monkey is might as well in Welsh. Might as well. Man, a man, a monkey. That's it. <laughs> Didn't learn that in Welsh lessons. Fr- throw that into yeah, a sentence yeah. this afternoon okay. at work. Um, okay. Right. Okay. Next one. Is it Welsh or did I make it up? Egam, Olgam. I see. I think your pronunciation is probably not there with the <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the Cockney Australian twang isn't isn't helping. Egamogam. Uh, I'm going to go with that's a real that's a real Welsh yeah? thing. Yeah. What, yeah. what do you think it means? I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. I've got no, maybe it means that. I don't know. I've got. I no don't idea. know. Egamogam. <laughs> um, so if if you have had a few Guinness and you're walking home. 
and you're, you're swaying a bit, you're egamolgam. Oh, really? Not going in a straight line. Oh, I can use that one. Yeah, okay. yeah. Great. You Great. can use it when talking about trend lines, you know, not yeah. going in a straight line. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it into conversation. That's all for the Welsh test. So you'd actually got... Um, oh, thank God. Well, I think two out of four there. That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's, good, that's, good, I'll take that. I'll take, I'll take that. Good going. <laughs> Do need some Welsh linguistic classes, but mm, um, yeah. Yeah. All good. All good. All right. <laughs> let's get stuck into it. Building data products inside a large corporate machine. Now, before we jump into that, do you mind sharing with the audience a bit of your career background and history sure. and, and your context? Yeah, sure. So I've uh, I've worked for Centrica, which are the kind of owners of British Gas um, and the, one of the largest energy companies in the UK for uh, my entire career. So I graduated 2002 computer science and then went straight into a, a kind of development role where I was writing code day to day. And then I moved slowly more into the data world. Um, and I looked at things like data architecture and data platforms. Then the latterly, maybe the last eight to 10 years, it's been kind of big data as that arrived, uh, you know, the early 2010s and then into data science. So where I run the, the first data science team in Centrica. Um, yeah, my career. So I've I've been um, a computer science graduate. I'm kind of doing a part-time PhD in computer science as well. Um, I've been on the review for digital innovation in Wales. I'm on the advisory board of a few bodies around kind of education in, in Wales, particularly relating to STEM and, and data science um, and technology. So that's really the area that I'm interested in. Um, one of the things I've been a big advocate for in Centrica um, is innovation and in particular kind of technological innovation related to AI and data science and how do we um, launch some of these kind of interesting things that we're, we're doing. Can we get them um, kind of out into the world a little more rather than just keeping them from within our own confines? So that's been that's the that's the thing I think we might find interesting talking about today because it's it's yeah. not always an easy path. No, no. Um, and I, I can imagine that the, the fuel you, you need for data products is data and Centrica yes. must have an enormous amount of data. Yeah, yeah. So actually our, our kind of jump into big data was as a result of smart metering. So in the right. UK, um, we've, we've now kind of adopted smart metering fairly widely and we've got a mandate from the government to get pretty much every property on a smart meter in the next, in the next couple of years. Um, that meant that you're going from a kind of meter reading where you give you know, your meter read four times a year, maybe twice a year, maybe once a year, to getting a reading every 15 minutes or every 30 minutes. So the amount of data suddenly overnight just you know absolutely exponentially explodes. So at that point, you think, okay, we need to do something differently. We can't just have our kind of old existing data warehouses. We need a big data platform. So that's the kind of initial growth. And then after that, I think it's probably... It's arguable, but I think every big company is a data company, really. Our data is our most important asset. You know, that's that's the thing that you're leveraging to understand your customers better, where your future product direction is, um, how you market to customers, how you understand the rest of the world and market trends. So, yeah, we've got a, a ton of data that we're, we're probably still figuring out how to best leverage all of that. Right. Awesome. And it's, it's interesting to hear how... Um, the dependency on accurate data goes all the way back to the home <laughs> with, with this smart smart meter yeah, implementation yeah. And, and the change there. Yeah. Um, I do know a story that my granddad, who's a bit of a ducker and diver, 
in his day right. and um, tried to bypass the meter yes. of his home. It's very common and still. Is it, <laughs> <laughs> and he actually blew himself up and shot across the driveway oh God, of the okay. front of the house. Yeah. He was fine about it. Livy's told a story. <laughs> um, but I don't think he tried it again yeah, uh, after yeah. that. Probably sensible not right. to do that, yeah. <laughs> and we have ways and means of finding out when that happens now, using data actually. Right. Some really interesting algorithms where you can kind of detect... Fraud, um, essentially. Fraud, yeah, yeah detect, right. detect energy fraud, yeah, energy wow. theft. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. All right. So so let's talk a little bit around, um, you've, you've got massive amounts of data. And I, I know from being in organizations that do have big data, that it can almost be overwhelming mm-hmm. um, where, mm-hmm. where to start. It's, it's just where, where do you, you start with it? I and mean, how do you create real value yeah. that can mean something to revenue growth, for instance, yes. or whatever yes. the strategic direction is? Um could you talk to me a little bit around what what practices and mechanisms you're you've you've learned from that haven't worked and yeah, that yeah. You, you've come across that is really working for you and the team at Centrica? Yeah, sure. So, um, we we yeah we discovered exactly the same thing really early. Actually, we've got this big data platform. We've thrown all of our data into basically a huge Hadoop cluster, and then what the hell do you do with it? How do you make sense of it? So historically you kind of architect your data from the ground up right you've kind of got these multiple layers where you surface all your data into these lovely clean or you know supposedly clean um tables dimensions and facts and so on um, and then your analysts can go and do things with them and that world i think has pretty much gone or at least changed significantly so we um actually took the unusual step of trying to build something ourselves to figure this stuff out so we we had a kind of ongoing project um called project george which was named after one of our data architects that used to talk about this stuff a lot um to try and figure out how do you best kind of make sense of the data that you've got in there so this project was aimed at can we create a kind of metadata repository so we can understand the definitions of our data and also use um uh, an algorithm to basically find links find joins in the data so you can do something with it and understand you know the interrelationships um that then became something that we kind of packaged up and then gave to the rest of the the organization and we thought actually this is pretty useful why don't we go and do something with this this became our first kind of external product so we actually launched a product called iotaho which is part of the centrica um, umbrella now and the centrica umbrella Uh, and that's a that's a data company. So Centrica, this energy company, increasingly going into services, um, we actually offer data as a service. So we've got this, right, okay. this data company. Um, and this this um, project, Iotaho, was literally something that we thought, can we make sense of our own data with this? Because right. you know, how, how do you actually kind of um, understand what you've got sitting underneath the surface? Right. Did, going through that process, did, how did you find solving that problem for you internally versus creating it into a product that, that yeah. served a purpose or a sol- as a solution for other companies that you so could then sell. In, yeah, entirely different. Right. Like they, they were entirely different things. So, right. it, I mean, the the amount of work it takes to get something built internally, I think it's it's significant, but it's different type of work to getting something launched externally. Right. So where we were building, I mean, you still write the code, you still work in the same kind of method in terms of you know, you've got a bunch of sprints, you've got a product owner, um, you've got this kind of end deliverable. Um, but when you launch externally, then suddenly you have to talk with commercial teams and with legal and with regs and with marketing and get a kind of financial approval at board level. And it becomes a whole different board game. And inside a big organization, 
um, you know, we're designed to do a, you know a couple of things, which is let's do energy, let's do services for for kind of customers, us residential customers and business customers. We are not designed to sell software. You know, right. nothing about our organization is set up to say, oh, this is how you go and manage a software product, and this is how yeah. you go and sell software. So actually, pitching that was quite a difficult thing. So we had to internally pitch that, very similar to how I imagine you'd have to go and pitch to a VC fund uh, to get some you know initial investment money. So we, we've got this product that we've built. We're using it internally. Um, it's getting some traction. And then suddenly we, go, we have to go and figure out, okay, does this, can we just pick this up and drop this in another organization? How does this work exactly? Um, so there were pitches to various kinds of investment boards, internal investment boards, um, lots of conversations at you know high level with at the boardroom that I've not been invited back to since because you know right. it's um, it's yeah well I don't need to go there and I'm quite I'm quite happy not to go there yeah. generally in, a, in such a such a big organization, but um, I think the, the the great thing was actually Centrica kind of really understood the value of data and they invested in it and then you know they went and actually made this happen they went and launched this this data company right and we've got a few other similar um, organizations right. in Centrica so we've got a product called Hive which is the, you know, the Hive Active Heating product so right. manages your heating and you know like a kind of remote control um, on your phone so you can go and kind of orchestrate your um your house basically right. kind of open the home we've got a company called local heroes which is kind of like uber for field engineers right so we we really appreciate the value of data and actually data and services probably the thing that's that's going to be the um the the kind of main selling point i think over the next 10 20 years particularly as kind of decarbonization becomes a much right. bigger force as well productizing any data set that belongs typically internally to an organization i can imagine you come up with a lot of conflict around how we use that data. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you're obviously in a regulated industry yep. a, as well. Yep. How did that impact, again, how you brought this this data product or data service to market, knowing that you still need to protect yeah. the data that's yours or your customers? Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely critical. So we, we have GDPR in the UK, the, yep. which is... Um, you know, it, it really emphasizes that we have to protect and respect customers' data and they own the data. Um, the other thing that we've done, actually, which I, I launched a couple of years ago as an ethics board, an internal ethics board for data science. Yeah. So I work in data science and one of the things that we do is build algorithms to do all sorts of things with, you know, potentially customer data or, you know, uh, techn- technological data or, you know, whatever data it might be. So we have to go through our own ethics board to get approval to, go and launch something so we're very firm on the fact that actually we you know we we have to pass not just the kind of um legal and reg side of things but is this the right thing to do with customer data right okay we we, we need to make sure that's that's kind of not just legal but actually um ethical and moral right in terms of how we approach it in terms of the the data product i mean the product that we built was really a kind of metadata management tool so it's almost um data agnostic you can kind of put any data in there and it doesn't really care what you do it's just going to find links and joins in it Um, and it's really up to then the next layer up of how you go and use that data that would have the impact you know in terms of gdpr or or, or legal or or regulatory impact right you mentioned at the start you you this was a proprietary product that that you, you built yourself um as a as a data leader, 
the choice with any type of product is obviously build, borrow, buy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what were some of the trade-offs that, that stood out to you as to why building it yourself yeah. made more sense than all of the tools and technologies and vendor solutions yes. that are out there? Uh, so there is still a, probably a debate inside right, Centrica okay. around uh, exactly around this, right. um, and you know, going back at that time, it was not clear cut which one to do. I think at the time the market was very immature in terms of big data. So if we go back to kind of twenty twelve, twenty thirteen, there were vendors, but there were no vendors that were doing the exact kind of mix of what we were looking at, right. um, or if there were, then maybe they didn't fit with our existing architecture. So we we thought. Actually, you know, our core competency is energy. That's the thing that we we know how to do well. And we'd always go and build probably first if we're going to go and do something energy related. But increasingly, we were seeing that, you know, our core competency needs to be data as well. We need to really get a fundamental understanding of how to use this data. So I think because of this mix of um, data becoming more important, more vital as an asset, and the fact that there weren't really mature vendor solutions out there, there were some open source pieces, but nothing really that, that kind of hit the mark. We made the the kind of decision. Let's go and do it. We made the it was kind of a decision within IT first, and then we kind of pitched up and sold that to everybody else. But you know, it went down well enough that we managed to get further funding and investments, and then eventually launched this this separate little startup out to the back of it. But it's I think that's always the discussion point inside a big organization. Yeah, do you do you build? Do you mm. buy? Do you do something different? Um, yeah, I think we got lucky with that one as well. Yeah. Probably is the, um, you, you're always taking a gamble with these things, right? Mm. You never quite know how they're going to pan out. Um, but that one, yeah. And, it, and it, it improved us as an organization as well. Actually, the process of going through right. it, I think, you know, you become more mature in terms of you, you understand what is needed to go and launch something out in the world at that point. Right, okay. You, you've made it sound very simple. Uh, no, 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 God, no. God Designing, no. <laughs> ideating, I imagine iterating to bring a, uh, this new product or, or service mm. to market. But I know, and I'm sure many people listening know as well, firsthand that it takes a particular type of culture yes. for that to happen yes. successfully within a reasonable amount of time yes. as well. Yes. Could, could you talk to me about uh, what is that culture that's yeah. enabled that success to happen? Well, the Centric is a 100-year-old company, or British Gas at least, you know, you can kind of trace its lineage back over 100 years. So it's a very big, old, traditional company. It's not, you know, not historically particularly fast-moving. Um, I think up until we launched this product, we'd had one patent application in the last 100 years. And then with this product, we I think we, you know, another 10 that are all currently being, you know, argued about and, and hopefully right. will be passed. So we, we I think, had to get involved in culture change, you know, culture transformation uh, as a, a big part of delivering this. And again, that's still ongoing, that never ends. And, you know, because it's such a big organisation, actually, you kind of target different parts of the org before, you know, rather than the, the whole thing. So, um for us, uh, I think we did a few things, and we're still doing a few things quite well, and other things we probably could do better. One of the things we do is we show our working a lot. So we right. constantly do show and tells. You know, every month we're going to do a show and tell of what we built, what kind of interesting new data science pieces out there. Um, we we also, I try and emphasize, let's show things that don't work as well as the things that work. Let's show some failures. Let's show that actually we are in a bit of a guessing game. We're exploring this stuff. It doesn't always take off. Um, that's been, I think, fundamental in getting buy-in, particularly from kind of senior leadership as well, because, right. you know, that starts to spread and it starts to build up a bit of a kind of wellspring um, of interest. So doing that has been great. Um, 
my team, bless them, are brilliant, and they do things like they'll run workshops, they run bring your own data days. So you uh-huh. know, come come with your business problem, bring some data, and we'll go and show you how to code an algorithm okay. in R or Python or something. Uh-huh. Um, and that's been something that they've launched independently as well, which has been you know really really good. Um, these kinds of li- they sound like little things, but actually. I think they are more impactful than some of the big kind of corporate campaigns because they come from the actual people delivering the work and they're aimed at the people that are going to kind of get involved in, in the work, hopefully. So I think from the ground up, certainly we've done a really kind of a good job. Where maybe it's difficult sometimes is to to start from the top down and to get a kind of cultural change from the top down. So you need to have um, leaders that have, I guess, the same desire to do that as you um, and if you don't have them then it's kind of difficult to change that luckily in Centrica you know we've had a few people that have really kind of believed um, in data in transforming the organization in innovation so over the, the past five or six years we set up a, a whole part of the organization called Centrica Innovations which is right. kind of an internal VC fund to okay. do things like this you know invest in potentially external startups but actually also invest in internal startups as well so right. innovation competitions and you know all these great things that you see um, companies doing we've been lucky enough to have that as well um, which has been really helpful right uh, can, can i ask with we, we, company this big and mm. with funds dedicated to internal and acquiring external external ventures are you almost too big to fail uh, you know when there are failures what, what 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 happens with that? This, is, yeah. is it well received? Because it's a public company. Uh, it's it's so it's um yeah it's it's on it's on the it's a FTSE one hundred company yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 so um yeah that's a really good question we so we haven't had a big failure right. yet I guess it's fair to say we probably will at some point yeah. I know you know some of the startup bets we've made maybe haven't paid off right. but you know that's the nature of the, the business I guess yeah, yeah that's small okay. bets yeah. Um, I guess I can talk about some of the smaller pieces that that we've done. So with right. with um, with my department, with data science, you know, we're trying to launch little products first that maybe might turn into something bigger. And some of those take off, some of those don't. Um, what we tend to find is that actually we find lots of interest from our business users to, can you go and explore this for me? Can you go and build something for me? Um, and then when it comes time to productionize it, actually we haven't really got the money right now we might get budget next year maybe come and talk to us then and you know that's kind of work that's been wasted or work right. that's been lost okay. and that happens fairly frequently that's you know that's right. that's okay. not an uncommon occurrence that's kind of a, a source of frustration for for me for my team but understandable i think because until you see some of the output from these things particularly you know if we're talking about kind of ai and machine learning then you need to build up a lot of data you need to get some historical data in there and start to kind of get the um the the training improved and then the outcome improved um it's understandable that the business are going to be slightly wary of that so we tend to see lots of those kind of peter out before they reach fruition but at that point we haven't spent you know huge amounts of money that's been kind of almost r&d money exploratory money because a lot of this is by nature r&d what would happen if a big part failed I don't know. I guess you'd probably see in our share price. <laughs> you know, that, that would probably be fairly impactful. I don't think Centrica are too big to fail, though. I don't think we've got right, the luxury okay. of being a bank right. or a big insurance company. Right. Um, well, yeah. Keeps Who knows healthy. what the future holds. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It keeps you keeps you kind of honest, I think. You mentioned there about um, receiving inquiries from around the business, small, small pieces of work. Um, and I know data teams, by nature, are very hypothesis 
led. Mm. How do you go about prioritizing what are the good hypotheses that are well rationalized versus what's just an idea and someone's just got a question for nothing more than them personally how do you you make that sort of almost product management prioritization decision around where you invest time oh yeah we we talk about this a lot we this 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 again is something that my my leadership team talk about in team meetings you know how do we prioritize the work because it's it's really interesting it's really difficult to figure out which is going to land and which isn't and actually the i think there are probably two ways that i've started to do it almost subconsciously in my head one is have we got a kind of really passionate product owner on the other side that really cares about it and you can tell they're invested in it and they want to do something so the question might not be great but if the person is enthusiastic and they you can see they they kind of want to see this thing through then that's a real kind of green flag for me um, you know, it's a red flag if they kind of, you know, turn up and, oh, well, I've heard about data science, you know, we might want to do this with you. What do you think? Then I'm probably not going to be as as keen. Um, the other the other kind of question, I think I saw this somewhere on Twitter, you know, I'll try and credit it at some point if I can. But somebody said you should have if you start a data science problem. Um, what is the thing you'll change in the business as a result of this? That should be your first question. And if they can answer that question, then that's also another green flag. Right. So if you know that I'm going to, you know, we'll build this algorithm for you and then you will change the way you handle customer calls in this way, or you will create a new process to do this, or you will do something, then that's that's great because you know it's going to be impactful rather than, again, can you explore this data and tell us what it means? You know, that right. that doesn't tend to give good outcomes, you know, or not, not impactful impactful outcomes anyway right. um, it might be the start of something and we still do some of those projects but you know you're not quite sure could you talk to me uh, let's go into the world of, of data science a little bit deeper now mm. i'm getting out, out of my own depth no sure, um, sure. so uh, h- how do you go about iterating on an algorithm in an efficient way oh that's good yeah that's a good question um I mean, it, sometimes it happens like that, but most often we've so we've had an we've had an example where we've built a product for our HR team, which okay. we're trying to productize at the moment, and and without kind of going into the, the the detail about the product is about, we've actually found that we've tried to improve this product um, not by kind of iterating on the existing algorithm, but by adding more. Um, and different algorithms to do it. So we're trying to kind of figure out a certain thing um, and we use a particular method to do that and then we augment that with other methods as well on top of it. So we keep adding and adding and adding and actually that we found is the best way of bringing the accuracy up. Um, it really depends on the domain that you're, you're involved in as well. Mm-hmm. So if you're involved in an area where you're trying to maybe classify something and you've got very few... Um, cases that are positive then it becomes quite difficult to do and you need to find more and different ways of doing it whereas if you've got um a fairly balanced data set where you're you're kind of classifying things into almost kind of two equal camps then actually yeah you can you can kind of fight her out and you can improve the algorithm consistently or maybe try different algorithms that that might change over time Uh, one of the standard things you do is you have a champion challenger so every period you know whether that's a month or a quarter or a year then you'll update your algorithm um with you know new training data and maybe you'd you'd change the you you tune it you change the parameters or look at different algorithms so you constantly you're constantly looking because the world isn't static the world keeps changing so yeah it's not it's not a single answer for that i guess Mm. there's lots of different ways depending on the domain that you're involved in 
Okay. A lot of the the data science hypotheses, when I've worked, been fortunate to work with data scientists, has been very exploratory. Mm, a lot of the time, yeah. so a lot for me, it's a bit like prospecting for gold. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, how do you how do you time box that with your team? How, how do you make sure you're not just you know prospecting yes. everywhere forever yes. Yes. and and put a limit on things? Well, so we yeah, lots of lots of the data scientists we have come from academia. Where the time skills are different, right, okay. you know, they just come out of PhDs, lasted kind of three to five years, and then suddenly they're in a commercial environment where we've got three to five weeks to do something quickly, right. and that that takes a bit of a mind shift. So the the things we tend to do, uh, we'll use kind of agile methods. So right. um, you know, I think we use agile pretty much across the board. Use some Kanban somewhere. Um, but this, I guess, focuses you on having outputs on a regular basis. Um, and then we've got product owner attached to pretty much every single project. And right. it's the product owner that gets to call the shots around, you know, does this look like it's going anywhere? Are we leading to any output? Um, so I think having the combination of an external person, you know, we're exchanging a PhD supervisor for a product owner, I guess, in some ways, but, you know, it kind of works. Having this external person, having these very short time boxed activities of kind of one to two weeks or three weeks in some cases, um, that tends to focus on on the kind of output. Um, there probably isn't a hard and fast rule about when to kill a project, though. And we're probably not very good at killing projects. I'd uh. say I'd like to see a few more kind of killed in their very early infancy if it doesn't look like they're going anywhere. Um, saying that some projects tend to bear fruit much later on and one of the things that we do is give our people some free time to work on things they think is interesting they think are interesting so we've got a few projects that are ongoing they're kind of like it's almost like the google time thing where i think they give 20 percent time um we give we give some time kind of like half a day to go and work on oh i think this social network problem is really interesting but nobody wants to fund it so i'm going to go and have a look and then maybe if it turns into something we can go and launch it or somebody else built this really great um kind of uh computer vision piece to go and look at solar panels on google maps to go and figure out where all the solar panels in the uk so because there is no central register of solar panels it's independent companies that go and these things so how do you figure out where solar is so there wasn't really a project there were a few people interested in it or would have been interested if they had that so this was a spare time project let's go and build a deep learning model to go and figure out solar panels so things like that tend to be interesting and then hopefully they become useful as as genuine kind of you know things that provide some value awesome i mean big big data typically for me assumes you have all the data Mm, is that true no 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 (laughs) god no god no no so i mean again it depends on the domain you're talking about so we've got i mean let's say let's let's talk about customer data this isn't something we do and i haven't explored the gdpr implications or anything so this is purely hypothetical um before anybody wants to sue (laughs) me but say we've got um uh tens of thousands of calls coming in every single day so potentially that's an awful lot of voice data uh, that we've got in we could potentially do something like turn that voice to text or do something like um your kind of sentiment analysis based on the tone of voice and the timbre and the loudness and all these other features um so technically the data's there but actually to go and mine that data you need to go and build this whole pipeline this whole process behind it which is going to be expensive and and time it'll take a lot of time it'll take a lot of resource there needs to be demand and what are we going to get at the end of it do we know it's going to provide value so again you're kind of you're always making bets on these things it's never quite clear cut where you're going to get the the value i mean something like that 
um, no doubt Google and other big organizations are thinking about how to do that. Microsoft, you know, right. how do you build a pipeline mm. to go and do that automatically? Mm. So it's not something we'd, we'd go and build ourselves because, mm. again, it's not our core competency. But, um, yeah, that data is technically there, right? right? So we could go and use it. Um, but, yeah. Whether you should, yeah. Okay. Whether we should and whether we want to invest the time and money. Does strategy set those guide rails quite strongly for you from an innovation perspective of guys don't, don't go into this space and don't go to that space or is that down to your own sort of decision? Um, the, so yeah, the, our, we've got kind of various strategies. We've got a data strategy, we've got an overall organisational strategy and the, that, as you can imagine, that tends to fit into, if it's your core competency, then kind of go and go and do something there, go and build. Right. Um, if it's not, then we'll buy something, we'll go and right. fit it in and that usually has to have some kind of um, ownership from the wider business. Right. Um, but in terms of if we're looking at algorithms, if we're exploring something, then actually no, it's very loose. That we right. do have we have a kind of a very research focused team that are able to go and explore some of these things and understand the value of them and then pitch back up to strategy and architecture and say, Do you know what we've explored this? This might be a good thing for us to think about more widely. So it's it tends to be a kind of a, a good kind of mutually beneficial relationship, I think. Right. Okay. Uh, the the number of PhD grads coming out now with, with, with data science mm-hmm. um, li- mm-hmm. listed to the name is is, is awesome um, and obviously the, the the salaries associated with that makes it very attractive for people going from masters up into PhD in, in data science but for those that have not like yourself that's doing a PhD alongside career mm-hmm. but have taken a purely academic start so I've gone from an undergraduate to a master's to PhD yeah. and then come into a commercial environment. Yeah. Well, what are some of the the common things that, that they do that you, you'd recommend don't do or that <laughs> could make things easier for them when working with product teams after coming out of an academic environment? Yeah, yeah. So I think the thing that shocks most of the, um, the, the kind of new starters from academia is you're in a commercial environment, environment now. There's a focus on where's the money at the end of this you know your time costs money and the output from your project needs to have a financial value attached to it and that um is i mean it sounds fairly obvious to someone who's been working in a commercial environment for 20 years but for some of our our new starters then that maybe sometimes gets lost and i think having an appreciation of how a business works is probably a really important thing because it's completely different to academia there are completely different goals and approaches maybe less so now in the uk actually you know there's I think as we're talking, academics yeah. are currently on strike actually because, right, of, okay. because of a few of these issues, and that you know they maybe are became more commercial. But you know, it's it's the the, the whole framing for the project you're doing is different, right. um, and understanding a commercial environment I think is critical. Um, there's also probably uh, a little bit around uh, kind of standing on your own two feet a bit more. So. In a PhD, I mean, you have to do that. You have to do independent research. But at the same time, you've got a supervisor there that's kind of giving you advice. And you've got your kind of academic peers and colleagues. And to some degree, you kind of fall off a cliff when you first join a big organisation. You know, you've got colleagues and you've got a boss, but you're also expected to be expected to be very independent. And if you're a data scientist, well, you know, there are certain expectations of you. You need to be able to go and do independent, um, high quality work that has some kind of outcome in the organization a commercial outcome so i think that this kind of focus more on the commercial side and focus on your kind of own independence is probably critical and the final thing actually this is probably the most important thing 
being able to express yourself and explain your ideas really clearly in a commercial environment, which is really different to an academic environment. Again, right. if you're talking to senior leaders, you don't want to talk to them about hyperparameter tuning or you know distributions. <laughs> you need to talk to them about again what's it mean in terms of the commercial value and and you know explain things in clear language. Right. That's absolutely critical. It's probably my first one actually. I yeah, know, yeah. I should have said that yeah right at the beginning. Yeah. Um. Awesome. And and for. PhD grad, sorry, I've lost my train of thought there. Um, for them, them coming in and and working in that environment, is is peer review of what they're trying to operationalize still critical? Like it is in in the academic world. Yes, so right. we do peer review. Right, um, okay. We we tend to, I mean, we t- we try to have projects with multiple people on them, so that they, we have the ability to kind of share code and work on code together. Um, we peer review, particularly if it's going to be production code, that gets peer reviewed, right. um, and that gets peer reviewed for kind of code quality as well as your kind of assumptions and you know you basing this thing on on sound logic and science. Right. Um, it's a different kind of peer review, I guess, to academic because you, you know you, we don't have um, uh, like papers that you we're can't publishing share it publicly. Yeah, yeah, we're not sharing it publicly, so it has a slightly different aspect. We want to make sure that this code works and it does what it's expected to do. Right. And of course, in um, a commercial environment, you've got testing, so it, everything gets tested multiple times. You know, integration testing, regression testing, and so on. Um, so yeah, hopefully by the time the code actually hits the world, that it's gone through. Is this sensible? Does it kind of do what we expect it to do, and does it break down? Um, and you know, should should have gone through all those st- steps. We do some pair programming as well, which right. kind of you know encourages kind of instant feedback and instant um, kind of resolutions yeah. to stuff. So that works quite well. Brilliant. For for product managers or product leads that are, uh, are going to be working with data science teams for the first time what are some of the ways of approaching a data science team to maximize the value from them that you'd recommend to to product people or product managers yeah so again lots of come from academia not all of them have but there's definitely um uh, a kind of approach with data scientists to say they they care really about the hypothesis they're trying to test and they care about the um the the underlying problem so getting really clear on the problem you're trying to solve and what outcome that will have i think that's the really critical thing with with getting a good outcome with data scientists so if i turn up with a product idea and i kind of you know pick a a random example i want to optimize this chair i'm sitting on because it's really uncomfortable how do i how do i go and do that i mean i could either say well um I think uh, all chairs are bad and I need something completely different. Go and think me something up, data scientists. Go and optimise the whole world. Or I can say, actually, we, we're limited. We've got, we know we can alter the, the length of the legs and the cushion um, right. comfiness. Um, can you optimise for those two things? So the second, the second one will have a much greater kind of um, ability for our data scientists to come do something because they, they've got kind of boundaries they know what you're trying to do they know the outcome of the problem the first one is a is a five-year research project and a phd right, right. and then you're going to get um some papers at the end of it and a you know a nice a nice thesis right. but probably not in a commercial environment yeah so strong hypothesis set the constraints try and give them some direction yeah exactly yeah. Yes. Not, not just we uh, all need direction wild and wacky <laughs> ideas um and, and similarly how would you suggest um engineering functions who maybe Data science is being introduced to, to the business. How how what would you recommend for engineers to to build a relationship with with data science teams? Yeah, we, so this is this is again is really 
um, I think it's still an ongoing discussion, probably out in the world around kind of data engineers, data scientists, DevOps teams. Um, it feels like it's critical to get all of those people in a project as early as possible together. So what I don't think works is if you start off with a data scientist and then we're going to throw some code over the fence to data engineers, then can you go and implement this, please? Go and plug it in somewhere. And then that you know turns into a DevOps um, process right. further down the line. It feels like actually to get a really good outcome, you want to get all those people into the project right from the beginning so they all understand the problem. Um, and the data engineers can be just as involved in fixing that or you know uh, building the, the product as a data scientist. So in, in Centrica, we've got data engineering teams. Um, they they work, kind of work in squads. We kind of use this kind of Spotify squad model that's been, you know, all the rage for a while. And we've called it, called it different things, but essentially it's yeah. kind of matrix working. Um, so we get all these people in together early on, build some rapport, build some kind of, you know, actual um, understand the people that you're working with to some degree. That's, you know, hugely important because we're all people at the end of it. We're not just resources. Um, and and then the data engineers were finding are contributing to how the problem gets solved. So it's, well, actually, you know, we could go and do it here because this platform supports this particular thing rather than, you know, you're building all this in R and actually you've got this kind of Python um, right. pipeline here. So why don't you go and do it there? So, so actually, um, getting them together, I think, really, really early on, and they're all technical people. They all, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't tend to be, I think, as great a divide between data people as there does sometimes between data people and kind of commercial people. I think that's the thing that's that's probably the thing that will fall down if anything does. Right, brilliant. Thanks so much for this session, Peter. It's been awesome to chat for. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having I've me. S- I've certainly learned plenty and. Um, you're the first data scientist I've had on and I, I know I could go through another five different topics with Great, you. Yeah. So it's been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes from the Product Coalition European Tour, please remember that I'm doing spending this time to raise awareness and funds for the bushfire affected communities of Australia as well as the wildlife and volunteer firefighters. You can show your support at bushfire.productcoalition.com. Until the next episode, thank you very much, Peter. Thank and thank you all for listening. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye.